over the holidays, our family was able to go to Taiwan to reunite with our cousins, uh, some of our cousins from the U.S. at their invitation. Uh, and uh, they and their boys, our, my cousins, uh, are very adventurous. So one of our activities uh, in Taiwan was to climb up the 1,120-meter foot-tall uh, Yangminsang Mountain. Uh, if you've ever been to Yangminsang, it's about a 3.6-kilometer hike from the bus station and another 3.6 down. We all thought it would be a great adventure, and we all needed to exercise after the big holiday meal, so we thought it was a great idea to go. As we began the trek after the bus dropped us off at the 0.7-kilometer mark, there was a nice cafe and the visitor center. It was at that point that my wife, Cindy, declared that that was the end of her hiking. Uh, it was very nice there with air conditioning and free Wi-Fi and lots of food and just a great place uh, to enjoy the beautiful view uh, of Yangmingsan. Now, honestly, part of me wanted to join Cindy. That was a very difficult 0.7-kilometer hike already. Uh, I realized I wasn't in shape uh, after all the holiday meals. But part of me was very embarrassed to leave my three kids with my cousins who wanted to continue. Uh, my U.S.-based cousins are experienced hikers. They take their children hiking all the time. Uh, and their kids kept convincing our kids that they can make it to the top. While I, on the other hand, at the visitor center, kept telling our children, do you really want to go to the top? It's really a long way up. Uh, but they wanted to, so I felt obligated uh, so that it wouldn't be paise or embarrassing to my cousins uh, that they would take uh, all five children up. Uh, I ventured up with them. At about the, the one kilometer mark, uh, one of my children, the second, the one who's most like me in size, uh, says, Daddy, I can't do it anymore. I want to go down and be with Mommy at the cafe. Uh, I'm, Daddy, I'm, I'm really tired. Now, inside, I was saying, hallelujah. <laughs> yes, I will go down with you. But I at least had to pretend to be the encouraging father. Uh, I at least had to pretend that I wasn't as half-hearted as I was. I said, son, you can do it. Are you sure you really want to quit? It's still a long way up. Now, let's just say I wasn't the greatest motivator. Uh, he said, daddy, I'm really tired. And I said, okay. Uh, so I announced to my cousins that my son couldn't go up any longer, and I had to accompany him down, uh, and I would not be going up anymore. They said, no problem, and they took my other two kids, and they went up to the summit of the mountain. They hiked up another 3.5 hours uh, while I returned uh, with my son to the cafe to join my wife. I think it may be the first time in my life where I celebrated and thanked my son for him quitting. When I think about this incident and I reflect upon it, I see that it's very much like the Christian life. We all know we need to persevere more, uh, to be more Christ-like, uh, to evangelize more, to disciple others, as the scriptures have told us we are to do. But you know, the reality is our minds are always looking for an excuse to quit, yet without looking bad. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, we're always looking to quit and yet without looking bad. So in our minds, we're simply hoping that the church doesn't challenge us deeply or doesn't challenge us to do something. Uh, in our minds, we justify that we're just okay to come to church, 
I'm okay as long as my spiritual level is about the same as everyone else. I'm okay with the status quo of just coming to church, uh, taking off the check mark in my things to do, and getting my dose of religiosity. Well, if that's the case, then you may not want to hear the next few sermons in our new sermon series. Because in this new series, I want to challenge all of us as a church body to rise up and to reach out without excuse to our spheres of influence into our community that surrounds us with the good news of Jesus Christ. Especially to reach out to the many who are imperfect so that they may be made perfect in Christ. Just as we are imperfect, made perfect in Christ. I hope you remember our anniversary message a few months ago. And I challenge our congregation, when you walk through these new gates of our church, do you walk every week alone with the same people, or do you invite at least one or two or three or four, to walk and enter the gates with you, people in our community who you know very well. But I know it's hard to do, because we're always thinking of a way to quit without looking bad. How do we cultivate this mindset to be challenged to reach out to those who are imperfect to be made perfect in Christ? Just as Jesus was able to do so, so we follow his example and welcome those who are imperfect as he has shown us. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn it this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, as we take a look uh, in verses 14 to 30. That's how Jesus began to reach out to the imperfect people of the world, what we call the sinners. And I'm going to refrain from using the word sinners, because when I use that theological word, people wonder, well, I'm not a sinner, I'm not that bad. So we'll just use the word imperfect, because all of us are imperfect. Luke chapter 4. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke these next few weeks. Uh, we have, in our previous series, we were also in Luke. We'll also be in Luke um, this series as we look at the early ministry and the ministry of Jesus to see how he began his declaration to minister to the world that was imperfect. Look at verse 14 with me as we begin this passage. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. Jesus began his ministry in the Galilee region, where he taught at the local places of worship called the synagogues. And they were all amazed at his teaching, his authority, his passion. Verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, note this, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Jesus returns back to the place where he grew up, his hometown. And as was custom in those days, all male adults were given a chance to read from the scripture if they were to visit the local synagogue. And so Jesus, on that Sabbath, on that Saturday, went into this place of worship, and he was given the opportunity to read from the scriptures. Now, how would his hometown welcome him? He was the regional celebrity. He was the regional hero at that time. The entire region had welcomed him. How, was, how would his hometown, his home synagogue, welcome him? Let's take a look, verse 17 to 19. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, note this, the acceptable year of the Lord. They gave him the book of Isaiah to read, and Jesus chose to read from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 to 2. And Isaiah 61 is a messianic prophecy. It was about him, and specifically it was about the mission of the Savior when he came to earth. You know, of all the passages that Jesus could have read, he could have chosen a passage that spoke of the glories of the Messiah and then proclaimed that I am he. He could have talked about the fact in Isaiah that one day all will worship the Messiah. All heaven will worship the Messiah and he can proclaim it is he. But of all the passages in Isaiah he chooses to read, it was a passage that revealed the heart of the Messiah for a certain type of people. What was it? Look again at verse 18 and 19. This messianic prophecy spoke of one who preaches and reaches out to the poor. A Messiah who heals those whose hearts are broken. One who frees those who live in spiritual captivity and in spiritual oppression. A Messiah who gives sight to the blind both physically and spiritually. Of all the passages to read from the book of Isaiah, Jesus chose the two verses that spoke about the primary mission of the Messiah, which was to those who are imperfect, the outcast, the sinners. It should have not been a surprise to anyone when Jesus began to minister to those on the fringe of society, to those whom we call sinners, the imperfect ones. The Savior came to the world to minister and to reach out to the people who were imperfect, people whose hearts were broken, people who were hopeless and helpless, people who are lost, people who didn't have very much self-worth, people like you and like me, and all the people that surround us. This was the people that Jesus ministered to. This is the mission to whom we are called to serve. You see, number one, if you want to cultivate a ministry like Jesus, and that is the challenge for our church to reach out to those who are imperfect, number one, if you're taking notes, you must have a heart for imperfect people. Unless you have a heart for imperfect people, you will not reach out to them. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, do you have a heart for imperfect people? Not because you pity them, but because you are also imperfect as well. We are sinners just as much as they are. This church is a place of imperfect people made perfect in the cross. It's the only way we are made perfect. Don't you ever have the notion or the thinking that you are here at church out of a sense of right or a sense of privilege to worship a holy and perfect God because all of us have not reached the standard of God's perfection and therefore we are all imperfect. So perhaps as God reaches us, reach, perhaps as God has reached out to us, imperfect and all, should we also have a heart that does the same for others? And it's very interesting, if you were to compare Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, it's interesting that Jesus does not quote the last part of Isaiah 61 verse 2. You see, at the end of verse 2 of Isaiah 61, it talks about the vengeance and the punishment of God. And yet here, in verse 19, he ends it with the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, he wanted to show forth 
the love and mercy and the tenderness of a God who has revealed himself to a world, to a world that needed to hear that they could be made perfect through the cross. Now, it doesn't mean that the world doesn't need to hear messages about God's punishment, but it just shows you when God, who is when Jesus, who is God himself, wanted to reveal himself, he ministered to people in need by first showing them grace and tenderness. As you cultivate a heart for imperfect people, you must also ask yourself, how do I treat those who are imperfect? And so you can note in your life, when people mess up, how do you treat them? When they make a mistake, what is your first reaction? Do you yell at them? Do you lose your temper? Are you impatient with them? Because your initial reaction when someone messes up, when someone makes a mistake, is an indication of a heart that you have, whether it is compassionate to those who are imperfect. How you respond says a lot about your heart. And the heart of God to reach out to imperfect people was a heart full of grace and tenderness. There's a time in our married life between me and Cindy when we almost separated, not literally, but it was at the breaking point. Uh, do you want to know when it was? It was when I tried to teach my wife how to drive in the U.S. Uh, you see, I wasn't very gracious with her. Every time I taught her how to drive, there would be a lot of yelling in the car. I would get mad if she made a mistake. Of course, I realized my life was at stake, whether in the parking lot or in the street, um, but I yelled at her a lot. Uh, I wanted her to be perfect as she learned how to drive. It came, I wanted to say, out of a sense of love because I didn't want her to get into an accident. I wanted her to drive well. But every driving session as I taught her how to drive would end up with her very much in tears and me very frustrated. And this was not good for our marriage. My brother, who was very aware of this, uh, offered to teach her. And for those of you who know my brother, he's very kind and he was very patient. And he offered to teach her how to drive, which he did. And he taught her with very much love and grace. And she knows how to drive today, not because of me, absolutely not because of me, but because of him. And she's told me many times, this is how you are to teach me. This is how I will learn faster. And so you ask yourself the question, how do I want to be dealt with when I make a mistake? We often want grace and tenderness shown to us when we make a mistake, and somehow we don't reciprocate and give it to others when they mess up. But how you deal with others who are imperfect says a lot about your heart for those who are imperfect. When someone makes a mistake or in their imperfection, do you deal forcefully in the letter of the law or do you deal with grace in the spirit of the law? Do you have a heart for imperfect people like yourself? Look at verse 20 with me. Then Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Somehow Jesus must have read the passage with such confidence and such passion and authority and engagement that the Bible tells us that all were on the edge of their seat waiting to hear what Jesus would say next. How he would expound this scripture. You see, it was customary to stand, to read the scriptures, and the male adult would then sit to comment on what had been read. And look how 
Jesus responds. What does he say about these verses? Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As he begins to comment, he simply says, I am the fulfillment of these verses. I am the Messiah. This is my mission. So all, verse 22, bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Do me a favor. Would you underline the word gracious in this verse, verse 22? I don't know about you, but as I read the gospel, sometimes uh, I have a picture in my mind that when Jesus declares he is the Messiah, he maybe says it with a bit of arrogance, although I know he has never sinned. Or maybe he brags a bit when he announces, I am the Messiah. But note that this was not the case. Look at the description of how he says it. It was gracious. They were marveling at the gracious words of grace that proceeded out of his mouth. Literally, they marveled at the word of grace that came from Jesus. You see, Jesus tenderly and graciously spoke this words of announcement. I am that Messiah. It's me. But somehow, regardless of how gracious the words of Jesus were, and the tone in which he declared it, somehow they could not wrap their head around the fact that this is Joseph's son. This is the carpenter. In their minds, this carpenter could not be so eloquent. This carpenter could not have such gracious words come out of his mouth. This could not really be the Messiah. We grew up with this guy. We know him well. How could he be the Messiah? And they look down on their own. And they begin to murmur. And Jesus heard their murmurings and said these in verse 23. And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Apparently, Jesus had been ministering in another town called Capernaum. And had done some miracles, but he did not do any miracles in Nazareth, his own hometown. And so his hometown people began to doubt his ability to be able to do miracles and substantiate his claim to be the Messiah. And Jesus explained to them in verse 23, I have chosen to refrain from doing any miracles in my hometown because of your unbelief. And he says these words in verse 24. Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Jesus was stressing that oftentimes people do not trust their own, even if the prophet brings words of grace. It doesn't matter how nice they say it. They will still be rejected. Jesus was acknowledging here their perceived and real rejection, and he was simply okay with it. A prophet is not accepted in his own country. What he's saying is, I'm okay with rejection. I'm being rejected and I'm okay with it. And so that leads a question to us. Are you okay with rejection? Because the reality is, if you want to minister to the people whom Jesus loves and ministers to, the imperfect people, the sinners of this world, your own will reject you. Are you okay with that? 
Are you okay with not being accepted by the people you grew up with, your, your closest barkada, your, your closest friends? You see, people who think themselves perfect will not want to associate with people they think are beneath them. People that in their mind have a deep, deep flaw, whether it's because of their ethnicity or because they have a lack of money or because of a disability or because they look differently from us, that somehow if we associate with them, that it is beneath them. If you associate with these types of people, if you welcome them, if you befriend them, your own will often reject you. Are you ready for that? You see, Jesus is able to minister effectively to the imperfects of this world, to bring them to perfection in the cross, because number two, he accepted rejection by his own. To accept rejection by our own is something that we need to cultivate in our minds. Jesus doesn't try to win their love as we often do. Please like me, we beg our friends. And I'm going to make sure that I do everything so that you'll continue to like me. He doesn't try to curry favor with them. He says, this is my mission. Do you accept me or not? And they rejected him and he accepted rejection and he moved on. He accepted rejection by his closest townspeople. And as we're going to read later on, even his own family, his own brothers thought he was crazy. But he moved past that because his heart was for those who were lost. In fact, in verse 25 to 27, he gives example from Israel's own past. Look with me. Verse 25 to verse 27. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus alludes to two of the most famous prophets in Israel's history, Elijah and Elisha. And he recounts two incidents where they were sent to the Gentiles, the widow at Zarephath in Sidon, and to Naaman, the Syrian commander. Now I want you to notice that Jesus does not say that because the Jews had rejected them, that he therefore then sent his prophets to the Gentiles. You see, there were also many people living in Israel who had need. He says there were many widows and there were many lepers. But God also chose to send these wonderful prophets to reach out to the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles were not an afterthought of God when he wanted to bless them. It wasn't that one group rejected them and therefore they got the leftovers because one group rejected it. Two of Israel's greatest prophets were sent by God to bless people he loved. And this must have been a horror to the Jews in Galilee at that time. You see, as we're going to find out, the Jews of that time hated anyone who was mixed breed or non-Jew. That's why they were called Gentiles. And we'll study the story of the great Samaritan again in a few weeks. Especially the Jews in northern Galilee they would take the long cut, the long route, just to avoid the area of the Samaritans. 
that separated them and Jerusalem. They were the elites. And they could not bear the thought that their God would send His prophets, especially these two great ones, to Gentiles. And the implication that Jesus mentions is that the Jews in Nazareth should expect no special treatment, especially with their doubt, from the Messiah. But that they should understand that God also reaches out to non-Jews, Gentiles. You see, in the eyes of the Jewish people, the Gentiles were imperfect people. But God says, I don't only reach out to one segment of the population. My love is equally shared by all. My love goes out to the broken, to the outcast, to the imperfect. And that's the third realization we need to understand. Number three, we need to realize that all are equally loved by God. All people are equally loved by God. You know, it's a good warning for us, this truth. That we don't get so caught up in the church life. Here in our perfect little spiritual bubble called grace. That we forget that there are people outside of our community that God loves just as much as He loves us. We need to realize that all people need the love of God. But more importantly or equally, we need to understand and realize that God loves them equally just as much. If we are to love as God loves, then we need to love all equally, however imperfect they are. Because we are also imperfect, and God loved us as well. Shouldn't that give us more reason to welcome those who are imperfect? One of the core values of our church is to be a home for the spiritually broken. We want to be a place where people who have experienced loss, a heartbreak, divorce, abandonment, a single parent, abuse, or they've messed up big in their life or mess up every day, that they have a place where they can find welcome here, a place of healing, a place of acceptance. The name of our church is Grace, whether we like it or not. Some say we had no choice. We were named after the school that started us. It doesn't matter. That's our name. We've had it for almost 50 years. But I hope this church body and the attitude that it permeates befits our name. The attitude of grace, abundant grace, should permeate the entire church. And that begins with you. Do we here in our spiritual bubble avoid sinners of all stripes and sizes? Do we try to avoid certain sinners because of a sin that they have committed? God loves them just as much as He loves us. God loves those who go to church just as much as He loves those who do not attend. God loves those who go to church just as much as those who go to the bar on Saturday night. And to understand this truth will soften your heart against spiritual elitism so that you can have compassion as Jesus did. The Bible tells us what happens next, verse 28 to 30. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, 
that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went their way. When they heard this from Jesus, it was the last straw. Their anger was triggered. For some, it was the anger because he claimed to be the Messiah. For others, it was the anger that he was okay with reaching out to the Gentiles. For others, they got angry because how in the world could God equally love all people? Whatever the case, his own people, his own neighbors, the people who grew up with him tried to kill him. They led him to the top of the hill, and they tried to draw, throw him down over the cliff. But then in a miraculous feat, because Jesus is God, the Bible tells us, he simply passed by them, and he went his way. I've tried to picture this in my mind. Did he, did he simply part the people like the Red Sea and just walk through them? Did he, you know, did he turn invisible and walk through them? We're not sure. The Bible simply says, as they tried to throw him over the cliff, he passed through the midst of them. He was able to just walk by them. And the Bible tells us he went his way. He only returned to his hometown one more time, never again. Jesus figuratively drew a line in the sand and walked away from a group that rejected him, that looked down on him, that didn't agree with his ministry and his mission outreach group. He simply walked away from his home. Jesus was going to fulfill his mission to reach the imperfect people of the world, to make them perfect through the cross. I don't know if you've heard the term a line in the sand before. I know we've used it many times, but do you know the history of it? I know the history of where this idiom comes from because I grew up in Texas. Uh, most uh, historians believe this statement comes through an incident in Texas history in what we call the Battle of the Alamo. Texas was once part of Mexico, and when Texas tried to break away from Mexico, they tried to prevent the Texas state from seceding. Mexicans, uh, under General Santa Ana, went into Texas with great vengeance and uh, they had surrounded a particular fort called the Alamo. The fort was defended by only 200 Texas rebels against almost 2,000 Mexican troops. As they were about to siege the fort, General Santa Ana sent a message to General Travis, who was the commander at the garrison at the Fort Alamo. And he told the Texas forces there, surrender or everyone will die. And Travis knew that Santa Ana's threat was credible and would be real. And so Travis called everyone together that evening. And he said that they would die if they tried to defend the fort. So as history recounts, he pulled out his sword and drew a line in the sand. He walked over the line and he said, on this side, on this side, I will stand and defend the fort which will lead to certain death. And if you would like to join me, you can. You are under no obligation. If you stand on the other side, you can escape tonight and you will live. And no one will speak ill of you. But make your decision. Make your choice. The line in the sand is there. It is recounted that all but one person 
cross over the line of the sand and all died the next day in the Battle of the Alamo, including, if you know, for historically famed Davy Crockett, with the Crockett gun, and Jim Bowie, who invented the Bowie knife. When I read the gospel account of Jesus' life, for me, this was his line of the sand moment. He knew death was coming if he chose to defend and reach out to the lost of the world. But he stepped over the line and he left a very comfortable life in his hometown of Nazareth. And he crossed over and he made a decision. And he simply invites people, as he does throughout the gospel, will you follow me? The line in the sand is there. What about you? If Jesus were to draw a figurative line in the sand this morning, and he says to you, will you walk over this line and come and help me reach the sinners of this world, would you do so? It's hard. I admit it is hard. Unless you have a heart for imperfect people, unless you are willing to accept rejection by your own, unless you see that you are equally loved by God as they are. If not, you will stay where you are in the comfort of your life. And you can stay there, go about your daily life, having everything status quo, no change, simply waiting for God to call you home. But I'm inviting our church to cross over the line, to step on the other side to reach out to those who are imperfect, just as we were, to welcome all sinners like you and me, of every type and every stripe, to come to a place of grace, called grace, a safe place for all, who are welcome to come and discover Jesus. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus' encounter with various types of people. It will be difficult for our church to hear this because we will talk about subject matters that we often don't talk about and we get very squirmy and find uncomfortable talking about prostitutes talking about those who embezzle, talking about those who are deep, deep into sin, who are abused, who are disabled, who are the scourge of our life, we think. And as we go through Jesus' encounter with these people, I want you to think about the people you encounter in your life very similarly. Do you accept or do you reject them? Because I want to ask the question, is Grace Christian Church really a place where grace is proclaimed in Jesus Christ? Is it? You see, there's a world out there that is lonely, that is confused, that is lost and in need. It is a world of imperfect people looking for grace. We are called grace. Will they find grace here? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your example. As you drew the line in the sand and you crossed over it in spite of the rejection of your own to reach out to a world that was so much in need. We hope we can do the same. You've given the, our church the name Grace, not out of a coincidence, but because I believe 
you want us to be a place and a haven of grace. Because a world that needs it is looking for it. And it's my prayer that they will find it here. That the body of Christ, each member, would exhibit the same grace that they have received. That this place will be known as a place of grace. That's my prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.